Today's episode of Comical Podcast is brought to you by TweakedAudio.com. For all your audio headphone needs, go to TweakedAudio.com, where you can find seven different styles of headphones in seven different colors. Use promo code COMICAL at checkout to get one-third off the cost, plus free shipping anywhere worldwide. Did you say seven different styles and seven different colors? I sure did. Ooh, can you name some of those? Well, you know they have wood. Wood? (laughs) I would totally buy wood. Yeah. I like wood. Welcome to episode 46 of Comical Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Corbett, and with me is... Horstocles. <laughs> oh, wait. I'm not Horstocles. I don't know who I am. I have too many personas. I'm like Miguel. Well, you're a lot prettier than Miguel. Thank God. <laughs> and, of course, we have our special guest today, Mr. Joshua hale Fialkov. Hey. How you guys doing? Doing good, man. How are you? Okay, you guys got me with my sexy voice because I'm sick. So it would actually nice. not be a sexy voice, but in my head, it sounds very sexy. You, you, have, you have the sexy factor going for you. Yeah, we'll, we'll take sexy after, voice. after we're done, I'm going to just sit in my office and talk to myself. Just, you know, just <laughs> pretty be alone and really get, to, really get to know where that voice comes from. Now's <laughs> the perfect time to record all the voicemail messages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Miguel is actually sick today, too. He came down with the flu this morning, so that's why he's not here. So uh, me and Heather are going to try to do the show. Hopefully it goes through without any kind of problems. I want to know what Miguel does that makes you guys unsure that you're going to make it through the podcast. Like, does he provide a service that is irreplaceable that you guys are so worried? That's really the question. He brings something to the table. <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, he's, he's a pretty funny guy. He and I joie, joie de vivre, we call it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He brings his bipolar act to the table. That's right. really has, what it is. He has a lot of personalities, and he does voices mm-hmm. and stuff on the show as well. So right. definitely brings something. Well, well, right on. Well, we will. you know what? We'll do our best, I think. I think that's all we can. That's all anyone can expect from us. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm going to start out by talking about my top two books from this week's uh, comics that came out. Uh, my number one book was Saga 24 from Brian Vaughn and Fiona Staples. Uh, it's actually unfair uh, on the weeks that Saga comes out. Because we like, because Bunker came out this week. Bunker 7 came out this week. You like how I got a plug in there at the same time? And uh, it's tough because, like, no matter how much people like the book, like, I think Saga is the best book, you know? Like, I, like what am I going to do? So it's hard because it's really like that, that book, like, it's actually unfair that uh, there's so much talent concentrated in one book. I think there should be limits placed uh about the talent like there could be some sort of system in place to Fiona, prevent Fiona that from only, happening Fiona can only draw 60 percent of the book yeah something like that or she has to draw <laughs> with her other hand she has to switch hands <laughs> nice <laughs> well saga was really good this week it was about the will and his uh companions gwendolyn and the girl that they picked up and we meet will's brother who has a pet who's a dog as opposed to his lion cat. And there's a little bit of a side story with them. And then we also kind of touch on what's been going on with the dad and the mom and Prince Robot. So all the characters are kind of included in this one issue. And it was just such a, a great issue. I mean, not a lot happened in the story, but it laid the groundwork for a lot going forward. As far as my second book of the week, which Josh beat me to the punch, it was, in fact, Bunker Number 7. Aw, oh, shucks. Thank you. It doesn't feel quite as, it feels a little disingenuous just because I'm sitting here. 
so we can pretend I'm not. I'll I'll sit in the corner and hum while you talk about it, if that makes you feel better. Fair enough. Uh, we get to learn a little bit more about Daniel and Heidi's relationship in Bunker Number 7. Find out a little bit more about Heidi's backstory with her uncle. Uh, she gets the note that tells her where to go and confront him, which is something she's been dreading doing and kind of looking forward to doing at the same time for a long time. And she finally does it in this issue. As usual, Bunker is expertly written and has amazing artwork and i love it well thank you i appreciate it thank you and my pick of the week is a little bit off the beaten path a new book that came out today uh rasputin number one from alex grecian and riley rossimo it's the story of russian dictator rasputin but it's told from a interesting perspective because it's told right before his death Mm -hmm. Uh, he's he's talking about dying all of his friends are around him and they're planning on killing him and he's sure that he's going to die within the next few seconds, and then he's having flashbacks to his past. And he's looking at his dad, who was very abusive, and beat him and beat his mom. There's kind of a supernatural element to it. It's all about his legend getting bigger than he actually was. Uh, it's a very fun, interesting story. If you like history at all, or you like the story of Rasputin at all, you'll really enjoy this book. I think that'll go over with kids down now today. Totally. Yeah. Well, it's pretty violent, and... Riley does a lot of the panels without putting any actual words into the story. There's a lot of the dad beating the kids and the mom, the dad chopping wood and fighting a bear and all kinds of crazy stuff happens. <laughs> but it's not really fascinating. It's not really like narrated. It's all told through the artwork, which is something you don't see too often. Yeah. Uh, and it's really hard to see it done right. I mean, we, we talked about a couple of the Batman issues that came out that were all artwork, no dialogue, and they weren't very good. Yeah, I was going to say, that's always one of Miguel's hang-ups. There's not enough words, or there's too many words, or there's not enough <laughs> pictures, or there's not enough this. He's always got some complaint. So I don't know if you guys know, but Alex, so Alex has been writing comics for, God, he started probably close to when I did, so he's been doing it for like 10 or 11 years, and um, he did an amazing book called Proof. Uh, at Image like five, six years ago. And Alex is one of those guys who sort of, he was, you know, worked his butt off and was really trying really hard but never really made like inroads to the big two and never really had a big audience. And this whole time while he was kind of working through comics, he was working on a novel about Scotland Yard, of all things. And uh, in the midst of the like, the hard fight of comics, he managed to sell that novel for a fortune. (laughs) Um, and so he's actually like a really, really beloved big time novelist. And so this book, Rasputin, is sort of a nice, and I'm saying this without his approval in any way, or I haven't talked to him in a while, but <laughs> like it's literally, it's sort of like a victory lap of him, or it's him where he gets to come back to comics and be like, see, I'm awesome. I told you. So I like that. I like extra that. Extra nice. Yes, yeah, so there's something, there's something very nice. And Riley, of course, is uh, like unbelievably cool. Like he's so talented. He's so good. For sure. I love Drummeller. It's a shame that it got canceled. Yeah, and you know he moved on to Rasputin, and the whole book is great. I can't, I can't wait to read the second issue. It's, it is still in my pile. I look forward to, I look forward to reading it tonight. I can only imagine your pile is pretty big and extensive, considering. It's, I actually, I stopped doing print comics for the most part, so my stack is digital and therefore uh, invisible. So I like that part <laughs> of it. Well, that's good. It's a space saver. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, because you like what happened. Like I, I have a storage unit with like a hundred plus long boxes in it wow. and they like stopped being in order years ago it's literally just like a giant mess of comics and um i realized like look i just can't keep doing this so there's some books i buy saga in print um i buy image books in print for the most part yeah. um, i buy independent books in print but i anything that i read for marvel and dc or um or i guess it's marvel and dc i do digital it really, it saves, and it also, it becomes much more apparent, like, what you like reading and what you don't, when you have to actively choose to, to get it, you know? Because yes, you can sure. see, like, oh, I've got, like, six of these. You can see them. 
And they're not taking up space, like, in a confusing box. They're just all right there, like, oh, I haven't read any of these. And then you can cancel your subscription. It's great. So what, what are your, some of your favorite books you're reading right now? Probably my favorite book is, like, a, it's also, it's really far. Like, if you think Rasputin is off the beaten path, um, there's this book called An Emily Was Gone that's published by Comics Tribe, which is a little independent publisher, I think, in New England. And it's written by a guy named John Lees, and it's drawn by a guy named Ian Lurie. Uh, it's probably the best comic I've read in like five years. Like I think it's probably better than Saga, wow. um, which is which I guess is condemning it a bit because then you have to that has a lot to live up to. So the concept of the book is a little girl, uh, a teenage girl, goes missing in a small town in Ireland, and everybody in town thinks she just like ran away to go to the big city, but her friend is convinced that there was a there's a like town, it's like a local piece of folklore about this monster, about this, like, boogeyman that's, like, local to their town. And she's convinced that this boogeyman is the one who did it. So she goes and uh, she recruits a detective to come and help her find her friend. So it's sort of like a, it's got, like, kind of a Wicker Man, like a Wicker Man vibe, and I don't mean the Nicolas Cage one. I mean the, the first one, the really good one. Um, although I do love the Nicolas Cage one. That There's thing is fantastic. When he, when he kicks Lily Sobieski in the boobs, it is one of those epic moments in, in film where you're like, what was happening? Like, at what point were they like, you know what would really drive this scene home? Nick, if you could just kick Lily Sobieski in the boobs, that'll really do a lot for And she was like, all right, I guess that's what you want. There's actually, anyway. a, there's actually a condensed version of The Wicker Man with Nick Cage on YouTube. And it's it's about, just him shrieking? Just it's him like shouting. him shrieking, not the bees, and when he kicks Lee Sobieski, and when he comes in with the bear suit and just clobbers the other woman. Oh. <laughs> it's not a bad movie. It's actually a lot of fun. It's just the original one's like a terrific horror movie. Like It's a really great horror movie. Anyways, so very much in vain with that. It's got very much a Hammer vibe. Um, and Ian's art, like, there's nobody... Like, maybe Steve Parkhouse is close, but, like, there's nobody who draws the way this guy draws. Like, it's got this, like, nasty, like, everyone is sort of deformed, but, like, the degree to which they're deformed, like, reflects, like, what kind of person they're... It's, it is a staggering work. Like, I can't believe, like, the two, like, Ian's done stuff, but I think John hasn't done a lot. And you read it, and it's, like, the most fully formed creative pair i've ever seen like it's it's there it's breathtaking i'll definitely um, check that out so yeah go find it it's on comiXology if you can't find it in your local stores and my buddy nick patara did variant covers for it like so it's it's everybody involved actually the colorist uh and then nick's colorist who did the colors on the covers for the life after also colors the book so it's gorgeous like it's it's really 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 great so go find that um i love and then i love silver surfer Dance Law, it's, I read like two big two books now. I read Silver Surfer and I read Daredevil by Mark Wade. Like those two books, I think, shame the entirety of the superhero industry. Like those two books are so much better than anything anyone else is doing and, and serve to like, you can give those books to anybody. And, you know, and I like, and I say that as someone who has written like insanely insular superhero comics. Right. where like they're literally written for an audience of like 20 people and these books you can hand to anybody in the world and they work because they're true and they're honest and they're about people and even though one of those people is a silver man in his underpants on a cosmic surfboard like it feels it has more humanity than anything else being published at either of those companies have you read miss marvel uh, i like miss i like miss marvel i like miss marvel i just think that it's not 
Oh, you put me in a bad place. That's a hard. That's a hard question. I do like the book. I think Silver Surfer is just kicks the crap out of everything else on the stands. Like month in, month out, it's just perfect. And he crams in more into one issue than anyone else manages to cram into a single, you know, into an arc. And it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel crammed. It feels perfect. Like again, like you know, I've written comics. I'm like. 14th year writing comics and the craft that Dan Slott has and how he uses his craft to tell emotional rewarding stories is uh, peerless like there's there's nobody better and and you know Mark is a Wade is a close second like those two guys they're sort of this amazing blend because they love superheroes like they both love superheroes and when you read their work it makes you love superheroes too yeah. You know, which is something really special. I think, yeah, look, I worked at DC, which is a place that hates itself, you know? So, like, <laughs> I, I know I know what it's like to read books about characters that people dislike. And the thing about those books is it's like looking into each of their brains to see everything that's terrific about those characters without changing anything, without fundamentally changing anything about the characters, which is, it's an amazing trick. Pretty good summary. Yeah. So, I'm trying to think what else I read that I read. Like, I like Saga. <laughs> like saga, stupid saga. Um, and then I actually really like it. It's, it's. I guess it's a little shilly just because I again probably do two books there. But I love just about everything that Oni puts out. They're doing a book. There's a digital comic. The first issue came out today called Ciudad. Um, that's written by Andy Parks, and it was co-created with uh, the Russo brothers, hmm. who uh, they did the show Arrested Development. Um, yeah. Yep. I don't know about that. Um, they also directed some movie about some guy in spandex <laughs> called Captain America 2. Mm-hmm. And CDOD's a project that like, I've, I've just known it and I've seen it kind of getting worked on. Andy's consistently one of the best crime writers in comics. And he was also, he's an inker. He, he, was, uh, he was Phil Hester's inker like, during the Green Arrow run and sort of that, like, that era. But he's been writing full time for a while now and he's just, he blazes. He's so good. Um, and so, yeah, Ciudad is, um, it's kind of like an angrier, more violent man on fire. It's great. It's really, really cool. That The first issue came out today, and it's like two bucks on Comixology only, I think. Awesome. I love having you guys creators on because you guys always know what the best things I've never heard of are. So, Well, because, again, like, the best part about, there's a lot of shitty parts about being a comic creator. It's a hard, it's a really hard life. It doesn't pay great, you know, you don't, there's not a lot of respect compared to in other industries, you know, but the best part is that, like, you get to see stuff before other people, so you get to see these projects as they grow and change and as they become these works of brilliance, you know, like, so you really do get to, you get to learn, you get to learn about the cool stuff that's not just what's sold, you know, and so much of what's sold is being sold, it's, it's the focus of it. Like, look, like the the Marvel event with all the different events is sort of it's like a satire. It's yeah, like a exactly. satire <laughs> yeah. of comics where it's like, do you remember these other 20 events? We're going to do an event that uses those 20 other events. like who cares? Like, I don't I don't because you know what? All that does is remind me that they did 20 events that didn't matter. You know, that none of those events did anything like mm-hmm. Spider-Man had a black costume. Like, that's the biggest change that's ever come out of an event. And then that went away. But the thing is, is, like, when you have independent comics and you have creators who get to say what they want to say, like, you you get to see it. And sometimes there's a confluence of events that lets that happen at the big two. You know, Snyder, Scott Snyder's Batman is very much his vision. Him and Greg are left alone to kind of make this great book. And it shows. Yeah, it does. It does. We actually talked to Greg Capullo back in May about that. And, you know, he said that they've had to fight for stuff, but they usually get their way. 
which is yeah. pretty awesome because I've heard a lot of really negative things about working for DC. They're all true. Everything <laughs> not true. So, I mean, do you prefer working in yeah, DC no, and writing yeah. writing for Oni and Image? Yeah. Oh no, I like I um, I frame it this way. I'm standing in my office. I'm standing outside my office, looking in, and I have six bookshelves that are lined with superhero hardcovers. I love Golden Age DC. I love Silver Age Marvel. I love that. Like it, I think that stuff is some of like the most powerful and meaningful literature of all time. And it is super fun in theory to write those stories and play with those characters. Like just the, there's a thrill. Like the fact that I got to write the Hulk wearing Infinity Gauntlets is awesome. <laughs> like that's super cool. It's almost like you become a child again and you relive yeah. those moments. But that's part of the thing is yeah. that it's still childish. It's like right. childish things. I, I got into this. The reason why I got into comics is I wanted to tell my stories. And until you're at a certain level at the big two, like you're not really telling your stories. Like there's there's sort of two sides of it. Like I with iVampire at DC, you know, it was certainly a slog and it was certainly a fight and it was certainly a struggle to get a book that I was happy with out of them. But at the same time, they also kind of didn't give a shit. <laughs> like it was too right. low on the radar that like they were just happy that like it, once it came out, they were just happy people liked it. Yeah. That they were happy that there was another book of like there was one of five books that people liked was this book. And they didn't understand it and they had problems with it and they kind of constantly it wasn't, it wasn't about you, it was just about the book itself. Yeah, it was look, this is the one thing that gets good reviews consistently. We should probably not cancel it. Like that was that was always the mentality. Yeah. And that's I mean, you can see, like, once we lost Andrea, once we got a new artist, and that team was like, and it's not that, you know, it took us a few to get to to, to Fernando Blanco, uh, Blanco, who ended up taking over for the last few issues. But like, as soon as we lost the chemistry of the two of us making the book, the numbers fell and the book got canceled, like instantly. Yeah. You know, so it really was. It was like, no, no. Once people started not genuinely loving the book, they were like, oh, good, we can get rid of it now. Yeah. Um, but you know, like, so I got to do that book and I got to do a lot of what I what I wanted and it was great. But then once I got promoted, so to speak, onto bigger books, like that freedom is gone. So it's there's this thing where it's sort of being in the middle is kind of the worst. Yeah. Like yeah. being a middle level being a middle level creator because you're being put on stuff that's like, oh, I'm writing a tie-in <laughs> to another book. <laughs> My oh, I can do this story for two issues before I have to cross over with three other books. And it reads like that. And it takes a very specific type of person and a very specific type of writer to triumph over that. And I am I have no shame in saying I am not that guy. Like, I wish I was, because it's way easier. Like, doing that stuff, writing pre-existing characters and not having to, you know, having a marketing department, a huge marketing department, and having pre-existing brand awareness. Like, all the, all the practical stuff of doing that stuff is awesome. And it's, you know, it builds your audience and it gets people interested. But the reality is that, like, you're not telling stories. You know, like, I wrote... I think think you lose your creativity. I don't know that you lose... I mean, it's it's a different... Again, it's like a different muscle. So, like, I took over Ultimates and the first... So, you know, I pitched my story, what I would do. And their response is like, well, the problem is we already have a cover drawn. (laughs) And, like totally legitimate like the book doesn't sell well enough to eat you know the five or eight hundred or whatever it is to draw a cover so you know i say all right well show me the cover and the cover is the infinity gauntlet and like i have zero affinity for this like that that is the stuff that drove me out of comics that is what i, st- I stopped reading all like right then 
Like once all that stuff became all the books were, I lost all interest. But what am I supposed to do? It's a job, you know, it's the job. It pays my mortgage and it pays my kids. So, all right, I'll write the best Infinity Gauntlet story I can. So you start writing it and then they say, oh, actually, um, I'm going to do this event. And uh, so Galactus needs to show up. <laughs> and you're like, oh, OK, already. And uh, the, the things the things you've done, you need to undo them because we can't have the books look like that. Like the books can't look as different as they look right now when we go into the event because then people and that's totally legitimate. Like who wants to read it? Like my book, you know, what the book was supposed to be for a year or two was Reed Richards, the Hulk, Quicksilver and Kang the Conqueror as the Avengers. Like that was the book. That's interesting. And and, you know, they were like, well, you can't do that. You need to bring back the ultimate. So you end up like, OK, so I will do the best I can to create a story that ends with the Ultimates back together, you know, and like you can't you're doing that was within the course of six issues. Like I spent three issues setting up. This is the new team. And then I was told you have three issues to break it back up. And like it works as a little standalone graphic novel. Like you can read it and it makes most mostly makes sense. And it has an ending sort of. But, you know, at the end of the day, like that's not the story I would have chosen to write. Right. Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying I'm not happy with it. I'm like, I love working with Carmine. DJ Minico was amazing. Like the books look great and it's super fun. And like I said, Hulk with the Infinity Gauntlets. But, you know, like that's not what they wanted. It takes again, it takes a very special type of writer to be able to be told, like, you need to do this this month in the middle of your story and not screw it up. And I like I learned through, you know, I did it for four years. I did work for hire for four years, pretty much. And I learned over the course of those four years, like, well, that's not who I am. That's not who I am as a writer. And it's not who I want to be. And it's certainly not why I got into this. Like, I, I want to tell the stories that I want to tell. And that's the thing. Like, I, uh, I, like, when I was working at DC, I had, like, the stress of working there. Like, I had probably gained, like, 60 pounds. Um, I had to walk with a cane. Oh, wow. Because my back was so jacked up from all the stress I was under. Jeez. You know, and literally like the day I quit, the day that I quit DC, I got rid of the cane. Like the cane went away like magic, like the instant that that weight was gone. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's and it's really like that was it was a big sign to me of like, oh, I should just do what I want to do. And then when we went and we did Bunker as a digital comic, like that was the thing. Like we did it. We had publishers who were interested and we had people who wanted to do it. But at the end of the day, it was like, I want to screw up. I don't want them to screw up. I don't want to blame them. I don't want it to be someone else's fault that this thing fails. Well, luckily you know? for you, you haven't screwed up. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> sort of. We're doing pretty good. Yeah, like, so, and that's, and that's the thing is like, so we got to do it on our own. And it's like, I work twice as hard as I worked before. I work, I'm writing like a dozen books right now, a dozen projects right now just to pay the bills and to make sure we're okay. But every one of those projects is something that I have chosen to work on. Every single one of those projects, it's not something where they said like, okay, you're going to write this book. This is who your cast is going to be. Have fun. Mm -hmm. You know? And, and like I said, I got the, I mean, Alpha, I did the book Alpha at Marvel. And right. Alpha, I literally had lunch with Stephen Wacker and he said, here's what's going to happen. This is what the beginning is. Here's, here's what the, here's what's like, you know, Spider-Man and Peter Parker are going to, or Peter Parker and uh, Doc Ock are going to brain switch. And he's going to, the last thing he's going to do is he's going to have created this guy. And then he, Doc Ock doesn't realize, blah, blah, blah. Like he literally like walked me through like, here's where you're going to start. You need to hit these three beats and then you need to wrap it up at the end. And here's how it needs to wrap up. Great. Like terrific. <laughs> I'm happy to do that. 
So like there's a like I said there's a definite benefit to that. Like there's something there's something great about it, especially when you're working with a great editor like Stephen Wacker who knows story and knows character and knows how to tell knows how to tell a compelling story. But you don't always get that. A lot of times you get you know random insanity that you have to sort of like try to problem solve. Yeah. And it sucks. Like it's not again, it's just not what I'm good at. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the books you are good at then, the ones oh. you've been writing. Um, let's start with Bunker, I guess. Sure. Uh, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a pitch about what it's about? Oh, I'm so good at this. I do it all the time. Like when I sit at shows, I say it five million times. So I'm really good. I can do it real fast, too. Uh, it's about a group of friends who discover a military-style bunker that contains letters from their future selves telling them they're going to cause the apocalypse. So each one of them have to decide if they're going to give up their hopes and dreams in order to theoretically save the world or if they're going to continue down the paths that they're already walking on and doom us all. And I like to give a little hint. I don't want to spoil anything, but it's the latter. It's, <laughs> they're dicks. They're a bunch of dicks. Um, so, yeah, so it's sort of like we're, we're in our – the first trade paperback came out like uh, August. Yeah, a few weeks ago. Um, and we're now on – we're in the middle of our second arc. Like I'm written up through the third – like I'm getting into the middle of the third trade right now. It's super fun. Like it's a really – it's really hard to write. Um, like I, I spend more time on each individual bunker script than I do anything else I do because it's, it's this like complex web that is planned and we have like a structure that as you tell your story – Especially when this kind of detailed, like new things constantly pop up. Yeah. Um, so even like the issue that you're re- the issue that came out today, issue seven, like if you look at my original notes, like that was probably issue three. Hmm. Wow. The book, but it just didn't become that. Like the book sprawls in a different way, and it sort of drags you along. So and it's been, you know, it was Comicsology's number one top grossing independent comic of 2013 which was before we moved over to Oni Press and it's been coming out from Oni and it's consistently one of their top selling books and they're awesome to work for and they love it and it's been really really satisfying. How did you come up with the idea for the story? <laughs> I normally don't tell this story because I always worry that one day I will get sued. But um I when when uh, Valiant first got purchased, I was having uh I was having like lunch with Dinesh as he was sort of shaping the business and like we were talking about stuff and the one and, and again like I didn't read comics. The nineties were sort of a black hole for me, comics wise. Like I left X Men number one was the last comic I read until Why the Last Man number one, pretty That's much. That's a pretty big gap. Yeah. Like I was I was like I after I was so disappointed when I brought home I brought home I went to the store and I bought all of X Men number one because I didn't understand that it was one comic. Right. I thought like all five of those covers were five different comics. So I spent all of my allowance just buying X-Men number one. And I get home and I remember like tearing it open. And I remember looking at the comic. I remember doing the exact like, same thing. <laughs> and looking at the, reading the first one and being like, this is terrible. Like this is really bad. I bet the next one's going to be better. And I tear open the second one. And I'm like, this is the exact same piece of shit. <laughs> Holy crap. And I'm like, but the third one can't. And, I, and I'm like, no, you I was, it literally broke me. It was the, I specifically remember that moment of it like breaking me in two where I was like, Oh, I'm done. I'm out. I can't do it. (laughs) Um, but no, so like, uh, of all the Valiant ideas, they had one that I thought was hilarious and and I wanted to do it without changing it at all is it was a book. I think it's called like Dr. Tomorrow. And the premise is it's about like a world war two pilot who gets a copy of Microsoft and Carta. (laughs) Okay. 
That's it. Like, that's really the car. I'm not exaggerating. He gets, like, a CD-ROM encyclopedia and uses it to fight Nazis. So he has, like, he has the knowledge of a CD-ROM from, like, 1993, and he uses all that knowledge to fight Nazis. I remember, and I said, like, I think it would be hilarious if you did it now, but with, like, our understanding of how it works. So, like, he gets the thing, and he's like, there's going to be an air raid. Let me just click this link. And he clicks it, and he sits there. And it's like, you need disc two. All right, do you have disc two? Did anyone have disc two? And they start looking around trying to find it. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> but that idea, like, and I, you know, I said jokingly, but, like, that idea was like, oh. Like, there's, a, there's actually sort of a neat idea. Like, the idea of having foreknowledge and not knowing if you can change it. Yeah. You know, like, and that's really what the bunker is actually about. And I think, you know, it also comes from when you have kids like having my my daughter changed who I am as a writer in a pretty substantial way. Like I went from writing dark twisted horror stuff to writing sort of more more cerebral like less just inherently nasty books. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> although they're still pretty dark and nasty, so it didn't change me that much. But you know, part of the thing of having a daughter is like, look, like I want her to learn all the things that I did wrong. I want her to know like all the shitty mistakes I made and like oh, I was friends with awful people, like all that stuff that you regret because if I can get her to learn that stuff, then she won't make the same mistakes. But the reality is that she's going to make the same mistakes because we all do the same shit. We all just repeat over and over and over again. So I think you take that, which is a very human, it's a very humanistic thought process. You know, it's very much, it's very much about humanity and it's how do you turn that into a sci-fi story? So is the bunker supposed to be a cautionary tale then? I mean, I mean, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny because all the apocalypse stuff, like I have this very detailed apocalypse and it is eerily similar to what's actually happening in the world right now. So it's like, oh, shit, this is not good. I'm going to run out of I'm gonna run out of science fiction. Like I'm doing uh, I, I had there's this whole thing where uh, we're doing an issue that's sort of like an annual, like a standalone issue. And um, the premise of it is that it's set in Oklahoma. And what's happened is because of all the droughts that we're having now on the West Coast, like the droughts have spread essentially. Mm-hmm. And so it's created a second dust bowl. And so it's these people and you think like, oh, my God, like they're living like 200 years in the future. And it's actually just like 10 years in the future. You know, like that's the idea. And so I start doing research and I'm like, dust bowl. And I'm like, holy shit, there's a second dust bowl. Like it's happening right now. <laughs> like it's actually happening. You know, like they think within the next 10 years, if things don't change, like there will be a dust bowl. Like, there will be just infestations of grasshoppers and, like, all this stuff that we, you know, from the 30s yes. is just going to happen again. Yes. So, you know, and you're like, oh, well, that's not science fiction, really. It's just sort of bad. It's just Ten bad. From now, somebody picks it up and is like, wow, yeah. this guy was a fortune teller. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah, between uh, between grasshoppers, Ebola, and ISIS, I think we're doing we're on the right track. Yeah, no, it's funny because those are the three, like, the resource resource management, like, the three pieces of the apocalypse in the book are resource management, which is Dust Bowl, right? So we're running out of water, we're running out of food, we're running out of all these things, running out of space to farm, um, number one. Number two is the spread of the illnesses that because we're so global, like we're spreading illnesses way too fast. Um, And the third is terrorism, how terrorism, how the fear of terrorism totally disbands society. And I'm like, oh, yeah, so I'm not actually, I'm no longer writing science fiction. I'm just writing truth. I'm just writing what's actually happening as it's happening. You're just telling the facts in a really creative way so people can understand it really easily. 
<laughs> I like it's like that thing with when when Orwell wrote 1984. The original p- title was 1948. Yeah, <laughs> and they wouldn't let him do it because they thought it was too dark. And they were like, make it science fiction. You're like, all right, it's, it's fine. We'll pretend it's not really happening. I guess that'll be fine. Yeah. Well, you just put a face on it all and mm-hmm. make, make Grady a character. Yeah. Well, and that's you know that's sort of the fun part. Like it's the book tickles a lot of a lot of like my warm spots and of story. To get to tell stories where it's literally like me, me today versus me 20 years from now, you know, like when when you look at yourself and it's literally two brains that are wired the exact same way trying to outthink each other. It's like such a fun premise. And like, I can't wait. That's Justin and I every day. Yeah, see, no, like I, I literally can't wait to get to those issues. Like, I'm so excited to finally have those moments. And even like in issue six which or issue five rather, which came out a couple months ago, the first issue of the second trade, like everyone gets put in a room together. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the whole issue is just like, hey, so let's all sit in a room and talk about the terrible things we're going to do. How's that going to feel? You know, like it's getting to do these very naturalistic scenes that are made like more palatable. It's more palatable to talk about the awful things we're going to do if we're doing it through the sheen of science fiction. Right. You know, if we're all talking about the fact that we're all shitheads and we're all awful. Um, and then Joe, you know, Joe Infernari, who draws it, does such a brilliant job of making it feel like dreamlike while also being really fleshy and really real. Yeah, he has a yeah. really unique um, style. Oh, he's amazing. If you, uh, he did a variant cover for Punks that we're going to release. We haven't released it to see, for people to see yet, but it's for Punks number four. And uh, it is like, I saw it and I called him and I'm like, how, like, how does that stay in your brain? Like, how do you have like that? It's like a crazy, like, Bill Sienkiewicz meets, um, like, Dave Gibbons meets, like, it's amazing. It's just staggering how cool it is. And, you know, he just, like, whipped it out. He's like, yeah, I just did this. <laughs> yeah, he's great. And I think people, like, it's, it's funny because we look at the response to the book, and I think people sort of, people respond harshly to his work, either harshly positive or harshly negative, where they, like, really, really like it, or, they, or they're really turned off by it. And the fact is, is like he's that's what happens when you do things differently. Mm-hmm. When you're doing work that's revolutionary and really different and really like redefines what you can do in this medium, how you can tell stories, you're going to have harsh reactions. Yeah. And so, you know, he'll like if he ever gets down about like response, the thing I always say is like, yeah, people hate Bill Sienkiewicz. Like I remember when New Mutants came out, everyone was like, ugh, this thing is ugly. I'm like, no, he's a genius, actually. <laughs> like, actually, he's just way better than everyone else. Just ahead of his like, time, like so, book. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, let's move on then to uh, Punk, since you brought that up. Sure. Why don't you um, uh, pitch that one? <laughs> there's no pitch. Uh, Punk's is my, so it comes from Image. The first issue came out uh, a couple weeks back. Issue two's out, I think, next week. Punk's is a book I did with Cody Chamberlain in, like, 2006, 2007. Uh, we did it through a publisher called Digital Webbing. And we did these two specials, and it... Um, it's a story of four guys who are Abe Lincoln, a man with a dog head, a man with a skull for a head, and a man with a fist for a head. Uh, and they live in an apartment building. Now, here's where things get wacky. <laughs> they punch each other in the nuts a lot. It's, uh, it's pretty tough. It's, pretty, it's very emotional and very, like I was saying, it's very dark. It's very much about the human condition. It's really not. It's just a lot of. It's a lot uh, of fun. Dick jokes. <laughs> it's a lot of goofy, so many dick jokes. 
hard to figure out fun. Yeah, it's it's a nice like it's it's funny because I'm writing I'm writing all these books that are so different from each other, but really like I realize each one of them is sort of like an aspect of my personality. So you get to see like if you take this rainbow of books that I do and you put them all together, like that's me. Like that's who's inside. And I, and it's interesting because I think you see like elements of each of the books kind of like popping into each other. Because I think like there's a lot of similarities in the tone of punks and life after. And there's also a lot of similarity in tone between the bunker and the life after. But there is zero similarity between the bunker and punks. I can, I can kind of see that, yeah. Um, but yeah, so punks is like a, it's like a sitcom. It's, like a, uh, it's very much inspired by The Young Ones, uh, which was an old BBC sitcom that they used to show on MTV when I was a kid. And it's, uh, it's really weird, um, and I think it's pretty funny. Um, it's very much if you like God Hates Astronauts, uh, which is also coming out from Image and also is totally awesome. Yes, it is. Um, you'll also, you'll probably like punks. Like, we're very much in the same vein. Although I think uh, we managed to be way more scatological. Like, God Hates Astronauts has stories, whereas we don't really. Like, we just have things happening. Um, and issue two that comes out, uh, it comes out, I believe, three days after Halloween. But just in case you're doing the, like, Halloween week, it actually has cut out masks. That you can use if you would like to trick or treat after the fact as any of our characters. They're they're there. You cut them out. I think I may go as the fist. I like that, right? <laughs> and it's and it's it makes it. I believe it actually adds to the surrealness if you're doing it so far after Halloween because you're just walking around with a fist head for no reason. Yeah. I, I would totally go as the skull because I'm totally morbid and into that kind of stuff. See? There you go. Like it's really it's got something. There's something for everybody. Exactly. Uh, I, like I know Cody did. It's I think it's the cover for like five. It's uh, Paper Dolls of Abe Lincoln. <laughs> like just the book's insane. And Cody and I like I, I don't know. I get scripts back because I, I write them and then like a month goes by and then I get art from Cody. And I generally have no memory. Like so I get the pages and I'm like, what is this? Like, did, <laughs> how did, did you just do this without me? And he's like, no, it's your script, man. And I'm like, really? No memory. So it's it's very much a like free form. It's very much uh, a creative release, um, and it's really like it's a ch- chance to just try stuff. So there's things that I do in that book that I don't do in any other books, and they they by by trying them there, I can then kind of take the technique and use it in in my more quote unquote quote unquote conventional work. So it's a really, and it's been, it's, it's like the response to it has been amazing. The first issue sold out. Um, we did not do a second printing because that does not seem very punk rock. No. Um, you know, like we, and you don't have to read the issue. Like you can read the issues in any order. There's no ongoing story um, really to, to speak of. Um, and then in the back of every issue, there's actually, we're doing all the old stuff that we did before. So you get two thirds new and one third old. So if you notice the first issue cover has a stripe in the corner that says all new, uh, with the words, uh, all crossed out and the word mostly written in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I like that. Awesome. Well, let's move on then to, uh, life after. Sure. So, Life After is my other Oni book. This is really we're gonna. It's gonna be like a four-hour-long podcast. I feel really bad. I'm doing too many books. They're all yes. great, though. They're all great. Oh, we want to talk about all of them. Um, the Life After is my Oni book. It's about a guy who wakes up in the. Uh, he wakes up to find himself in the afterlife for suicides. Does not remember committing suicide, so he doesn't know why he's there, and is the only person who's awake and aware that he's not just living his regular life. And he is aided by Ernest Hemingway as they go on an epic adventure through the afterlife. And it is, it's a little, it's kind of surrealist, and it's got sort of an odd flavor. And it's, 
like it really is i love all my books but it's the one that's really closest to my heart if if punks is me completely unfiltered a life after is me unfiltered and focused you know like it's about things that i think about on a regular basis and the the like the issues that it's about are like yeah like they're about it's about religion and morality and fate and destiny and all that stuff but it's at the end of the day like it's about being good about how hard it is to just not be awful yeah and how like we all like the the uh, like i'm a big kurt vonnegut fan because kurt vonnegut book kurt vonnegut's books are pretty much uniformly about how awful people are yeah but, but the thing about them and why they will live forever and why they will always matter is that they're about how awful people are, but they're also about how wonderful people can be. Yeah. And so, like, that's that's a lot of what I try to channel into that book is this idea of, like, what can we do? Like, if we put our minds to it and we take away arbitrary rules, because that's, to me, like, a lot of what religion is, is, is arbitrary. Yeah. It's a lot of, like, well, you can't do, like, and, and you know, I'm Jewish, so I'll beat up on Jews for a while. Um, <laughs> the, like, the no pork thing, like, there's a reason, right? Like, there's a reason that we didn't eat pork in biblical times. And that's that we didn't have a process to clean the meat. So pigs, like, live in shit. Right. You know, so, like, their pigs are disgusting. And so if you ate pigs, you would get, it's a disease called shigliosis that you get from pigs. So how did they tell people, stop eating this delicious thing that's killing us? Is they said, oh, well, God said you can't do it, <laughs> you know, and and like totally legitimate. I know like there's and I, I've I've heard from people that it's true and I've heard from people that it's false. But the story of, of Lent and why people have to eat fish, the the story, which might be apocryphal. The story is that uh, the fishmongers in Rome couldn't sell the fish because it was like the fish was going off too quickly because of the temperature, you know. And so they went to the Pope and they said, like, we're good Catholics, we tithe, we give our money, and we're starving. Like, you need to do something for us. And so, miraculously, God went to the Pope and God was like, hey, Pope, you know what you should do? You should do Lent. No meats, only fish. And so suddenly, like, all these guys, so, like, it was literally, it was, like, lobbyists. The Pope was a genius. (laughs) No, and, like, and it's really, like, no, I'm I mean, Cat- hey, I'm Catholic was- and I think it's ridiculous. So. <laughs> I think the new one, the new Pope's pretty terrific, though. I'm a big fan of that guy. Terrific. Yeah, yeah, he, he said he believes but, in evolution today. For yeah, that guy's great. High five. High five, new Pope. Exactly. But no, and that's, and that's the thing is like, so we have all these kind of arbitrary rules, you know, and then to, you know, as we stand in the middle of all of the shit that's going on with gay marriage and with trans rights and LGBT rights and all that stuff like I don't care what anybody does as long as it does not hurt me and my family I do not care right and I just want people to I just want my family to be happy and I would like everyone else's families to be happy and that's not enough you know like that's for a lot of people like that's that's where the fight comes from yeah and it's it's this weird like it may it literally makes no sense to me it makes no sense to me that you can believe the things that are actually in the Bible, the the morality tales that are taught through the Old Testament and the New Testament, the words that Jesus Christ spoke, supposedly, right? That you can believe all that stuff, and still but then evil. still be like, oh, but you're going to go to hell because you're different than me. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what's well, completely counter? Like, that has nothing to do with anything in the Bible. Yeah. You know? 
and you know, and then part of being a Jew is like our all of our sacred texts are meant to be allegories. And none of them are meant to be taken literally. But you talk to people, you know, I have my, my mother in law is a born again Christian and I will frequently have conversations with her. I'm like it's like none of it makes sense. Like if you look at the so you go and you look at the story of Noah and people believe it literally. Like people look at it and they think, like, oh no, that that's true. Like, wh- what's true? That there was a boat big enough to contain two of every animal on Earth. Yeah. That he could find every animal on Earth. That he could find microbes. He got microbes, and he was like, "Come on, guys, let's go. You know, like, Got to put you in there." <laughs> like, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And then, you know, like, uh, but people believe it as fact when the fact is, like, Jewish Jewish documents. All of the Jewish religious documents are meant to be taken as allegories. They're meant to be taken as stories. Like, next to the Torah, the second sort of most revered book is the Talmud. And the Talmud is literally like Aesop's fables. It is a series of stories of things that happen and what you do in case that thing happens. Like, there's stories about, like, oh, well, if you guys fight over, like, you both claim an ox. Like, you have an ox and your, your neighbor has an ox and the ox have sex with each other. Who owns the baby? You know, like, that's pretty practical. Like, it's, it's very yeah, practically yeah. minded. You know, and like, okay, I get Like, it's useful. I get it. But, you know, to take all that stuff as gospel, literally, yeah. to take it as though it's 100% true when, like, obviously it's not. Like, obviously the things you were talking about are not possible. Yeah. But, but they want to believe it. And a lot of it is, is, it's sad. Like, it's very sad to me that people who have the potential to have so much love in their hearts don't actually use that love. Yeah, that's what I think about religion. Everybody, <laughs> everybody focuses on send all the hate mail too. <laughs> yeah. So how does how does that relate to life after though? I mean, do you feel like the characters in life after are just blindly doing what they've been told well, to do? Yeah, that's part of it, and I think it's the idea that like what they're really like what Jude and, and Hemingway are really going on is they're going on an adventure through morality. They're seeing like the remnants of of shifting morality of how. There was a time when things were believed differently. There was a time when certain behaviors were accepted. There, like, I mean, you know, the Romans had sex with boys. This is what they did. You had sex with a woman to make a baby. But if you wanted to have sex for sport, you had sex with a little boy. And that is horrible. Like, yes. what? It is fucking disgusting. But that was what they, that's what they believed. Like, that was their belief system. That was okay. That was how you made men. And so under their reign, when they were the dominant people on Earth, with the dominant belief structure, what does the afterlife look like? You know, like they would let all the pedophiles in. All the pedophiles would be totally fine. That's fucked up. Like, that's horrible. <laughs> but that's the thing is like, so morality shifts and changes so much from generation to generation and from culture to culture. You know, look, I mean, the, you know, if you go and you look at the, the native peoples of South America, like they just murdered people. They sacrificed people. They committed murder. Like, that is, a, that is it. That's number one. Number one on the list. <laughs> but they were doing it because their God told them to. So what happens? Like, so what happens to those people? Where do they go? Like, do they now go to hell because suddenly this is now the dominant, because now Judeo-Christian ideals are the major, are the, are the main uh, religious belief in the, in the world? So, like, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we get to deal with. But it's all done with, I think, a pretty light touch. Like, I don't, oh, think, yeah, it's, I don't think the book is, like, too heavy or crazy uh-huh. like I just sounded for the it's, past ten minutes. It's very, it's very um, not lighthearted, but it's, it, it doesn't seem heavy. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's the Kurt Vonnegut. Like, I really want it. It's, it's sort of, like I said, it's sort of my love letter to Kurt Vonnegut. It's like if Kurt Vonnegut uh, wrote uh, Richard Matheson's uh, What Dreams May Come. 
That's my. That's 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 the thing I think about when I'm writing it. It's a lot. It's a big burden to carry. Well, it's fantastic, and I love the behind the scenes idea of the life after the of the guys who. Yeah, that it's well, we get to see a couple. Uh, what's on three just came out. Four just came out. I think four just came out. Yeah. Um, we get to see pretty soon. Like the second arc is uh, each one kind of starts with like a different iteration. So you get to see how we got to the like eighties to like eighties technology running the afterlife. So we get to meet, uh, we get to meet some old gods. We get to meet, there's actually in previews right now, the cover for, um, the cover for issue six, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, one of our, two of our new characters, one of whom is the ancient Aztec God of alcoholism, um, (laughs) who, when all the rest of the gods were being slaughtered, was too drunk to fight. It was just like, I'm just going to sleep over here. You guys have fun. Do whatever you're going to do. (laughs) <laughs> we get to see that scene. That's a spoiler because you actually get to see that scene in the book. So yeah, like it's fun. Like and it, what's what I like about writing that book is every issue I turn in, the book becomes about something else, but in a really good way. Like it really, like I feel like it refines itself and it it's discovering. It's it's going on. It's going on a journey with me, and I get to kind of focus it how I want. I always think about there's if you look back at the golden age of Vertigo, right? Like when everybody was. When you had Warren on Transmet, you had Garth on um, Preacher and Grant on Invisibles and Neil Gaiman on Sandman. Like you had all those books. And what each of those books really are when you look at them is they're not actually stories. They're actually like idea repositories. So when you actually go back and you look, like I always think about in Preacher, there's there's like a couple page scene about when Cassidy met Bill Hicks. Uh Uh-huh. How much, or how when the two of them, or I can't remember which one it is, but like one of them met Bill Hicks and hung out with Bill Hicks. And it's essentially just like this weird aside that is a bunch of Bill Hicks jokes. You know, and you look at that and it's like, yeah, because that's something that was important to him. Like that, that to Garth Ennis is just as important as the Bible, just as important as the, the characters in the story, just as important as all those things because that's who he is and it defines who he is. And I think Life After for me is that book. Like that's the book that lets me do all those things. How did you choose Hemingway? There's not a lot of options, to be honest. Like, because there's a very specific set of circumstances, right? So the idea is, do you have to be in the afterlife for suicides? That's number one. Number two is they'd have to be awake already. It has to be someone who is already awake in the afterlife for suicide. So what that means is it has to be somebody who doesn't have because what what the afterlife is, what the afterlife for suicides is, is it's it's mundane. It's your most mundane day. It's not your best job. It's not your worst job. Yeah. It's just it's that job where you had to Xerox all day. I'm like, yeah, it's not digging ditches or cleaning toilets, but it's pretty miserable. Yeah. So who who committed suicide but didn't have that kind of life? Like never had a boring day. Who being trapped in the afterlife with nobody to impress would be their most would be their most mundane day. And there's literally only one person we could think of, and that is that's Ernest Hemingway. Because that guy didn't have mediocre days. Like he was a he was every day of his life like was lived to the fullest. Like yeah. when you read his biography, you read about him. Like he just lived. Yeah. Like he Absolutely. felt life. Um, and even when he was writing, it's like if you read, if you look, there's new editions of almost all of his books that have come out in the past like five years, and each of them have the entirety of like the previous drafts of his work. Yeah. And you see him like beating the shit out of himself. Like he is beating himself up while he writes these books. Like so even like the most mundane thing that we do as writers is actually sit there and type. But he was like going through this journey, this epic powerful journey as he's writing. 
to the point where you're like, yeah, that's not even like even that wasn't boring. Like he clearly enjoyed it. He clearly liked the like the thrill and the challenge and beating his head against the wall. And, you know, part of the thing about committing suicide is there's a there's a degree of misery. There's a degree of your life has been hard. There's a degree of your whole existence has become unlivable. And, like, he committed suicide because he was losing control of his uh, faculties. He had hemochromatosis, and he was, he essentially realized, like, oh, this is it. Like, this is my last day that I'll be able to be me. So, I'll see you later. Yeah, peace out. I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, which, like, Hunter S. Thompson, Hunter S. Thompson did that, too, to some degree. But I also think, like, Hunter S. Thompson, first of all, he's too recent. And it feels, like, distasteful because it's so recent. Yeah. And I also think, like, the man Hunter S. Thompson is not the same as the character Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Whereas I think, I think Ernest Hemingway is pretty close. Like, I don't think we're too far off from how he would actually be. No, I definitely you know? get the, the feel yeah. <laughs> for it. That's really interesting. My grandmother, who passed away in uh, March, she loved Ernest Hemingway. She read every mystery novel known to man. She was a huge mystery buff, and she loved all of that. So um, it's pretty interesting that you chose him. And I actually visited his house in Key West oh, right and, and went and saw all that when I was pretty little. I was like eight, so I think it's really cool that you chose him. As your cat lover, I can tell you, he does get reunited with his uh, uh, with his misnumbered toad, with his with his extra toad cats Yes, uh, awesome. at some point. He gets one of them. He gets one of his cats back soon, so oh, he's got a cat fabulous. and a dog. I can't wait to read that. Yeah, yeah it's coming it's coming it's weird it's very weird awesome well let's talk briefly about devilers sure because it's a miniseries so there should be less to talk about hopefully <laughs> it's true <laughs> Devler, the devilers is something that like devilers is is a job like it's i love it and it's really fun to work on but that's kind of like one of my it was you know it was a project that was created internally at dynamite and when they were talking about who they would get for it like i think they were just big fans of i vampire and so their pitch to me was sort of like, hey, you want to do a book that's like I Vampire that is about seven exorcists? And I was like, sure. Sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> and so that's that's pretty much what the book is. It's very much that. Um, and it's uh, drawn by Matt Triano, who's amazing and is going to be a huge, huge artist. Like, he's really, really, really talented. He does such cool stuff. Um, His demon designs are pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah, the frog flipping them off is like in the first issue is like one of my favorite things. And I I, I don't actually remember if I wrote it or not, so I'm going to give him credit for it. <laughs> Although maybe I should take credit. If I don't remember, I should probably take credit. Um, you yeah, know, and it's it's really cool. It's a, And it's funny, writing that alongside Life After is sort of interesting because this is very much the pulpy religion book, right? Mm-hmm. It's taking all of religion as myth right as supernatural myth essentially right and then just kind of going to town like letting it letting all the cool stuff come out and so it's got sort of it's again like even though it's about similar subject matter to life after it's very much got like the opposite tone right where, like, i wanted i wanted to, i wanted to do a big action movie like I, this is this is my big horror action movie like it's like it feels like it's a legendary movie like legendary films would make it you know yeah and then you know as opposed to life after which even with the art style, you know, Gabo, who's amazing, like his work is is so weird. Like it's just weird and odd. And it's again, it's got that sort of strange dreamlike feeling to it as opposed to Matt's where Matt's has this almost photoreal quality to it. So it makes this it makes the unreal feel real as opposed to Gabo on Life After where it makes the real feel unreal. Right. You know, like, look, like it's, it's weird to have both books coming out simultaneously. But I also sort of love that they serve as counterpoints to each other. You know, because for me, like everything is about the idea. I've learned again, like it's great. Like I look, I love 
Shazam, like Captain Marvel, Shazam, Captain Marvel. I'm just going to call him Captain Marvel. I can't. It bothers me. <laughs> That's fine. Like, I love Captain Marvel. And if they came to me and said, Josh, you can do whatever you want with Captain Marvel, like, it would be super hard to say no. But at the end of the day, like, I don't really have an idea for Captain Marvel. I just like Captain Marvel. Right. Like, I like Wolverine. I like Batman. I like the Punisher. But, like, I don't really, like, I don't have, like, a yen to tell those stories. Whereas, like, if you say to me, like, if you give me an idea or you say, like, what would you do with this concept? Like, that's really exciting. And so, you know, and I get the best of it because I get to do it for me. And I'm a shitty boss, but, you know, <laughs> I, don't, of, I don't take too much off the top, you know. <laughs> out of all your books, what would you want to make a movie out of? If you have- Well, I like, I like money quite a bit. I'm a fan of money. So I would me too. I, of- I always see green. I don't see any yeah. other color. I sort of have prided myself on the fact that my books are books first. Like I've sold, I've sold movie rights on almost everything I've created and um, none of them become movies and you just sort of, you get a little check and it's nice and it's some money to split and that's cool. But at the end of the day, like what, what we really want, it's like, I think about the Alan Moore stuff and how kind of outraged he was. But the fact is like, no matter what they do to those properties, like those books will always remain and they'll always remain and they'll always be great. Yeah. And so that's that's my focus. And like the secret, like, cause, and I, you know, I got into comics. It's like 2001, 2002 were my first years. And, you know, that was right after 30 Days a Night. So 30 Days a Night sold and it resold, like, it got, it got sold for a bazillion dollars, like a ton of money. And then all of a sudden everyone was like, shit, comics, let's go. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so you stood there and you'd see, and like, the problem is, is like, yeah, like, you can do, you know, werewolves on the moon, you know? Okay. Like, that's okay. Or, you know, we put uh, Dracula versus Al Capone. But that's not actually something to buy. Yeah. Because it's such a broad, like, okay. It's an idea. Yeah, that's a thing. (laughs) But, like, what actually makes things valuable is that they're actually good. What actually makes them valuable is that, like, not only is the logline compelling, but the actual work is compelling. And so, you know, I think, like, I come from that generation where I'm really, really overly conscious about it. So, like, I'm very much, I live in L.A. I make, for a long time, you know, what I did instead of work for hire was I sold movie rights to my books. And that's what paid my way. And then I, you know, got a mortgage and a kid. And so suddenly it was like, oh, I got to go to work, I guess. But, you know, now, like, living off that stuff and really just focusing on the creator own, like, it really comes down to, like, if I tell compelling stories, they will find an audience. And, you know, whether that's doing a TV show as a commercial for the book, you know? Yeah. Which, and that's the thing, like, the part that people... Like, the, the smartest part of The Walking Dead, uh, of what Robert has done with The Walking Dead, is that it's a commercial for the books. Right. Yeah. And it's a commercial for the books in sort of the best way, which is it's really similar to the book, but the books are totally different. Yeah. So when you go and read the books, like, you're getting a different experience. A better experience. So it's like, yeah, and it's like, <laughs> oh, so if you like if you like this 45 minutes every week on a giant network, then you're going to love the book. Yeah. And that's that's really the goal. Like I I love TV. I'm a huge TV nerd. As much as I love comics, like there's more TV shows that have had more impact on me as a creative person. You know, like I thrive on TV. Yeah, I would uh, say Justin does too. Yeah, you and him I, I would get along so much swimmingly. TV, it's not even funny. <laughs> you know, like and and so like I I do love TV and like I have a few TV projects that I'm working on and like I totally see those as legitimate. 
And I think there's a version of every book that you can take to TV or film and make a good film or good TV. But it's I, still... I totally think so, especially out of your books. I think well, of you. all the creators that Justin and Miguel have had on the show, I mean, just talking to you tonight, I have a pretty good idea of what you like to write about. And I think that would be an amazing thing to see on TV or even in a movie. I would totally be all over that shit. For sure. We're, we're, we're working on it. There's we have a couple there's adaptations of a couple of the things we talked about tonight that are fairly far along. But again, like it's not it, here's the the hardest part about comics. And this is true if you're Scott Snyder writing Batman or you're me writing my weird independent books. The hardest part is we don't actually have an audience. Yeah. Right? Like right. if a TV show Batman is consistently like top 3 comics, it sells like 100,000 copies. Mhm. If a TV show had 100,000 viewers, they would just take it off. Like, they wouldn't even finish the episode. They'd be like, oh, we're done. Just walk away. Like, they <laughs> yeah. cancel shows that have, you know, five to ten times that audience. Yeah. But for us, that's, the, that's, where we, that's where we're like, please, God, may we sell 100,000 copies. Right. And all, like, it takes, like, they're doing the, like, again, they're doing an event book that contains every other event that's ever happened. Right. In hopes of getting maybe 150,000 people to read it. Like, we're talking, like, they're making movies that are seen by hundreds of millions of people. Movies that generate billions of dollars. And the reality is that no matter how great Winter Soldier was, right, first of all, Brubaker's comic is better. Yeah. And not even a thousandth of the people who saw the movie have also read the comic. And that sucks. It yeah, does. It really yeah. does. And, and like that's right. thing, like not an illegitimate medium. We're a legitimate medium. We're a legitimate form of storytelling. We make compelling work that you can't do in any other medium. But, but I, th- think, I think things are going in the right direction. It's just slow moving. But it's not actually. That's the thing is that the numbers aren't. The numbers sort of aren't there. Like we people don't read. I mean, that's really the big problem, right? Is that like, I, I totally agree with you though. People don't read. Not anymore. You know, and like, look, even, even, you know, like, I'm friends with a lot of people in the publishing industry, and like, I've been around the book publishing industry, you know, traditional books, and again, like, people don't read, you know, people just don't read, and so even, you know, even prose novels, when they sell, you know, six to 10,000 copies, people are like, woohoo, this is great, and it's like, no, like, there's billions of people, and we have never had a better time to reach them than now, yes. but we can't do it, like, and we've never been able to really connect. So that's the thing. Like, so what's attractive about Hollywood, aside from oodles of money, which would be great. Yeah. Like, what's attractive about it is like, oh, all these wacky things that I'm telling you guys about, all these crazy ideas that are in my head. Like, yes, the like, you know, eight to 20,000 people who read them are aware of them and it moves them and it touches them. And that is awesome. Like, I love my readers. I just wish there was like a hundred times more of them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, what and you- it really is, and it's not actually about like it, it, it's you know, like we say it's about money, but it's actually not about money. It really is about like I work really hard, and yeah. you want people to enjoy it as much as you do. Yeah, I totally you know? get that. I mean, even even doing the podcast, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, it's a medium that hasn't been accepted by the general population. Like, there's a handful of people that know about podcasts and listen to podcasts, and getting your show recognized among all the other shows is really hard to do. Yeah. Right. And it's and like I, I'm fully awake. We're all fully aware that comics will never sell millions of copies again. Like it's just not going to happen, you know, but at the same time, like the fact that that's true is really it's it's one of the kind of constant burdens. Walking Dead, like Walking Dead sells a shitload of books like that thing sells a ton. 
but it's still nowhere near the audience. Like the show gets like sixteen to eighteen million viewers. There's a lot of books that get returned too. I've heard that story. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that, you know, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, where it's funny, but like the reason why TV works as a medium is you can't take it back. Yep. You know, like, people pick up the the first volume of Walking Dead and say, "Where's Daryl? I want my money back." Yeah. I've yeah. That so many times, and it's just yeah. sad to me. No, and it's it's like I said, it's it's that's the hard part. That's the attractive part about Hollywood, and that's yeah. like, and, and I like I don't know that people say it like that, but I know that that's in people's hearts. Yeah, like it's like they announced all those Marvel movies, all four hundred of those Marvel movies. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Holy moly! But at the end, and like, yeah, like it's gonna be great, and it's gonna bump Captain Marvel's numbers. Like that book is gonna when they do a relaunch, it's gonna sell better. But better is like forty thousand copies, right? You know, even the like like Scotty did. Scotty did his Rocket Raccoon, which also is awesome. I should add, the book is so cool. Yes. Um, but like, so he does Rocket Raccoon. It sold whatever three hundred thousand copies or something. But that was issue one. And it was a bunch of covers and loot crate and all that stuff. And then you look again, like look like as the movie grew and as the movie audience grew, like the comic is just there and it doesn't sell anywhere near like where it should compare, especially because he's one of the most talented guys in comics. Mm. Yeah. You know, and a sweet, such a sweet guy. Really, really sweet. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> what do you, Josh, what do you think the answer is? I mean, what do you, what do you think the oh, answer is? If to... I knew, I'd be so rich. <laughs> I'd be swimming around in my money pool. I want we'll to we'll help you get your money pool. I know. I mean, I think part of it is, and, and I think, look, the expansion of, of genre outside of the superhero stuff, I think is really important. And I think that when you have a book as odd as Saga, that sells what it sells, like, that's great. But, you know, what it really comes down to is, and this is, like, a cardinal sin as an artistic person, but transmedia. Like, if you could find a way to have The Walking Dead TV show hinge on the comic so that when you're watching the TV show, if you're reading the comic, if you're reading the comic, you're getting a better experience. Yeah. yeah. If all these, like, it, it really comes down to designing what you do as a creative around how to get it into the most hands as possible. And look, there's a huge downside, which is that people suck and you can't do, like I will never get life after into millions of people's hands. That book is fucking too dark and too <laughs> weird and about things that people don't like talking about. It's too awesome know? for most people. Don't, that's right. Don't they just, their heads will explode. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, like that sucks and that's really tough. But, you know, like, look, even with Bunker, like if we get a TV, so we get the TV show of Bunker on the air. Like the version, no matter no matter where we put it, it's not going to be as dark and as twisted. It's going to be separate. It's going to be a separate entity. So, like, yeah, like there will again, we'll get you know five percent, and you know five percent of an audience of four million people is pretty sweet. But it's also again, it's you're still sort of like you're making this thing that people aren't really experiencing. And again, like really clear, I'm really grateful for the people who because like I have my fans are super loyal. And they follow me from weird publisher to weird publisher with odd book after odd book. And, like, I'm so grateful for those people. You don't have to tell but me again, I'm I one just, of them. I just want more of them. <laughs> I just want there to be more of them. And to some degree, like, what Robert has done with uh, Walking Dead has cracked it a bit. Because, like, now, I mean, Image wouldn't be Image if it wasn't for Robert's success. Yeah. yeah. Like, everything you're seeing now is because they made so much money that they can do weird, risky stuff. And they can help support creators as they go into doing that stuff. And that's that's probably why there is so many good image books right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the publisher to be at. I think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I really and again, like I'm not a. I love I love image and our experience there. Every time I've worked there has been great. But you know what I love about Oni and working at Oni Press for is a lot of the same thing. It's it's there's a level of freedom 
but then it's also everything. Oni publishes like five books a month, and every one of those books is awesome. Yeah, and that part is so cool. Like it's so cool that I know even before. Like one of the reasons why I'm doing so much stuff there is like when I was just a fan, I knew. That if, if a book had the Oni logo on it, I knew that book was going to be awesome. And that's just not true of Image. Like, Image books are crazy. Like, there's such a weird, crazy range of what's there. So it's, you know, the, the way that Oni kind of curates their line is really special. And, you know, there's, like, Drawn and Quarterly does amazing, does amazing. There's a book they put out. I want to find it now. I'm standing by my books so I can actually find it. I think it's called Beautiful Darkness. <laughs> and it is, I can't even say their names, Kariscote. And Fabian Wellhaum. Nice. Uh, I know, it's not really not helpful, but it's called Beautiful Darkness. And it's like uh, Alice in Wonderland, if instead of going down a rabbit hole, she was instead miniaturized and lived in a corpse. Oh, weird. It is, and it's like, it's so cool. And you see it, and you're like, oh, right, this is why comics are awesome. Because you can do this, and you can't do it anywhere else. Right. Yeah. There's no other medium that you can tell this story this way and have it work. Yeah. Comics are really special and I'm I'm really glad that they're growing and they're doing better. And I think it's it's to some degree like there's a responsibility for all of us who both love comics and work in comics and talk about comics. There's a very there's a very big uh element of of evangelizing. Yeah. Yep. You know, like it's about telling people like no no, these things are not you know, these things are not what you think they are. You know, my wife like had never read a comic book when she met me. You know, like she'd never, she had no real concept of what they were. And, you know, over the course of our time together, like not only does she love comics, like she writes comics now. It's awesome. So like she's written a bunch of My Little Pony comics. Like she's did. She had a book that actually came out today. She had a story in a book called Colonial Comics. It's like an educational, kind of educational bent uh, historical comics. Oh, that's That's great. And it's, you know, and it's, it's. That thing of like, and so because, you know, because she got brought in, like she's introduced her friends to it, you know, and so it, it, it spreads like it's it is it's viral in the best way, not in the Ebola way. I, yeah, I, to- I totally <laughs> it's agree. It's not only viral when you throw up on people. In other words. <laughs> I, I started out reading reading Archie comics when I went to summer camps and I, I would love to read more than I do. I don't read very much. Um, you don't have the time. Yeah, I, I'm a school administrator, so. I, I sleep, eat, sleep, and breathe at a, at a school, but, See, but which, I, have, which I love. You have, access, you have access to young minds to corrupt with comics. You know, yeah. totally, and and that's what I want to do at some point. I, I definitely want to to expose them to some stuff that, you know, they wouldn't otherwise get a chance to read. And and all the kids in our school love to read. Does your school still have a librarian, or are the librarians gone? No, no, we have a we have a library, and we do have a librarian, and. And and our kids, it's a private school, so it's a oh, little bit right. different. So yeah. we have we have the ability to to push them and and actually you know do a lot with the kids. So it's pretty well, awesome. If, if my books weren't horribly foul, uh, <laughs> filled with swearing and bad ideas, um, I would send them to you to put in your school. That's actually that's one of the things. This sounds ridiculous, but instead of selling your old comics to a bookstore or whatever, uh, take them to a library and they will circulate them. Yeah. You know, like there's stuff, there's there's all that kind of like act. It's it's funny to think of it as activism when we're in a world that's as messed up as we are. But to some degree, like we again, like we do stuff. Like I think you can teach more people about acceptance with Saga than you can with any almost any other way because that's a book. That's what that book's about. Yep. It's about how people are different from each other and how yeah. just because you're different doesn't mean you're not meant to be. You know, and it's and it works because it's science fiction. It works because it's hidden. Yeah, Miguel would totally agree with you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he he'd tell you that he loves you for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, now I do miss him. Now I understand what he brings to the table. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Just him and Saga. He's, and he's good at sucking up, too. Yeah. <laughs> we learned that last week. <laughs> well, we do have another segment on the show where we like to have our guests tell us a funny story. I haven't done enough. Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, no, he's putting me on the spot oh, okay. now. Now it's All my right. turn to talk right. and say stupid stuff. I was going to have Heather tell one and then ask you to tell one if you don't mind. Yeah. So um, in being with the spirit of Halloween, every year I dress up in some crazy costume. But this was, I guess, like six years ago. I had gone to, we had like a, we have like a big Halloween store that's like downtown in Houston. It's called Frankel's. And um, they have all these different Halloween masks. And I decided to buy one. I was pretty lame that year. So I just bought this stupid mask. And it was like this cat mask. And it had ears. But it definitely took the shape of like a cat face. And so I showed it to Justin. And Justin's like, oh, whatever. I I said it looked good and whatnot. But then uh, the cats were all afraid of you, and we noticed it. Yeah. They decided that I was, like, this giant cat that had come home. I had brought this giant cat home, and they were terrified. They were screaming and howling at me. They were, like, hissing. They thought I was a cat. They they were, like, literally terrified of me. They thought I was a cat. So then at one point, I got down on all fours and pretended I was a cat just to see what they would do, and they they, they, they did not like it. They were hiding, hissing. Yeah. <laughs> they were terrified. They were like, who the hell brought this cat home and get it out of my house? It was funny because you could take the mask off and they'd immediately recognize you and come up to you. Yeah. And then you could put it right back on and they'd freak out again. Do you tell the story way better than I do? <laughs> it's so bizarre. <laughs> I'm not good at telling stories nor jokes. I always tell a joke wrong. Like I'll tell you the punchline and it'll be like, oh yeah, that was the part where you're supposed to laugh. Hmm. But actually, yesterday at at our school, we do – this week we're celebrating – well, I guess not celebrating, but uh, drug-free week or whatever. They have that, like, red ribbon week at our school. So yesterday – The kids have to take them off after they did drugs and put them – Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. So you know, like, oh, man. You did drugs. Take it off. But but anyway – so we had a crazy day yesterday and I have like different wigs because I like to dress up and do fun things. And I'm, I'm crazy at the school. I definitely encourage insanity and, you know, get the kids to do fun stuff. And anyway, I wore a wig and none of the kids recognized me. It was pretty funny. They're like, wait, Miss Heather, is that you? We don't wait. Who are you? Like they were so confused, especially the three year olds. I thought it was really amusing. That they had no idea who I was. And then today when I went back, they were all like, Miss Heather, you don't have your hair. Why did you take it off? I'm like, oh, my God, what what's happening? <laughs> like, I don't know what I just did. So now I'm terrorizing kids at the school. I've terrorized cats and now I'm terrorizing children. There you go. You're a terrible person. Totally, totally. Good to hear. Um, I'm trying to think of my best, like, Halloween story. Well, there was the time that my brother, who was committed to a mental asylum, escaped on Halloween. I didn't even know he was my... No, that's that's actually the plot of the movie Halloween. Nice. (laughs) So when I was a teenager, uh, this is weird, but I actually worked at a radio station. I was a DJ at our local radio station. And it was an alternative... It was, like, an alternative rock station. This is, like, 91, 92. So I'm, like, 12 years old. And I somehow, like, I harassed the program director until he gave me my own show. And so I had, like, a a weekly thing. And um, I worked there for, like, two or three years. So I was 14 or 15 by this time. And um, we'd all, because the radio station was up this, like, weird hill, and it was sort of cut off from the outside world. You know, it was, like, a nice, like, private place. And I eventually managed to get in, like, a a bunch of my other friends. Like, it was a bunch of teenagers 
working at like an alternative rock radio station in Pittsburgh. It was very weird. Oh, that's and, so awesome. um, yeah, it was actually pretty, it was actually like, it was a pretty great, it was a pretty great time of life. But so we would always hang out there at night because we were like, there was enough of us working there and we'd all bring our girlfriends there and we'd, you know, just screw around. Not literally. That was not, <laughs> I'm not encouraging. No, we would just hang out. Like it was just like a place to hang out because it was quiet and we got left alone. And, uh, so one night we're there and, um, the cops show up and they're like, you kids can't be here. We're like, oh, we work here. And you always have like, good timing. I know. And we're like, no, the cops are like, well, look, like we've had a bunch of reports of uh, suspicious characters and we're literally there's nobody there. Like, it's impossible for anyone to have seen us because it's so far in the middle of the woods. But we're like, whatever. So we all we disperse and we go home. And then, uh, and this was on Halloween. That was my that was I'm sorry. That is my horrible segues. That's what we did on Halloween <laughs> night is we did. that. Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, like whatever, it's the cops and it's Halloween. So they're always out looking for trouble. So we go home and uh, the next day I'm like, I come home from school. And uh, there's a cop car in my driveway. I'm like, what? Oh, no. Like, how did they find me? You know, like, that's weird. So I go in, and my, my parents are sitting there, and they're like, well, where were you last night? And I'm like, well, I was at work. And they're like, where do you work? I'm like, well, I work at this radio station. And they're like, so where's the stuff? I'm like, what? They're like, someone broke into the station last night and stole everything. Stole the console, stole the microphones, stole all the CDs, like, stole everything. Jeez. And... We had someone matching your description, and we, you know, I'm like, well, I don't know. He's like, well, the, you know, the station manager said that you and your friends were really sketchy, and that, you know, you had been bringing your friends there, and so, you know, what are you, what are you gonna say? And I'm like, I didn't steal it. Like, I don't know how. Like, I didn't think I even had my license yet. And I was like, I don't know what I would do. Like, I don't know how I would transport several tons of equipment by myself and the cops were like well, we're keeping an eye on you so i'm like i immediately call my friends all my friends got the same phone call like they all had the same visit the same cops showed up and said the same thing to them like trying to crack us trying to figure out which one of us is the ringleader and we're all just like oh that's weird so we all like so there's no work anymore because everything's gone right. right so like the station's essentially shut down so we're all quote-unquote fired although none of us are getting paid which is seems even worse now as I say it out loud. Um, <laughs> I had to get an FCC. I have an FCC permit to broadcast. Oh, wow. um, so uh, we're all just like, and and the thing is, is the station manager, who's this like '80s guy, uh, just gone. Like he's just gone. We don't know where he is. We like haven't heard from him. Like so, we're all calling him to find out like what like when do we need to come back to work? Like what are we doing in the meantime? He just doesn't respond to anything. Like a week goes by, and I go. There's a record store that we all hung out at. Um, called Jerry's Records in Pittsburgh. It was great. It was like an actual record store. And uh, we go to, so I walk into Jerry's and I see this like these crates of CDs. And I notice that they're all alternative rock. <laughs> oh no. And I'm like, son of a bitch. And I realize like that's ours. Like that's ours. They stole from us. And I walk up to the guy behind the counter and I'm like, dude, like w- these are stolen. Like they stole these from from my radio station. And he's like, I don't think so. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, the guy who brought him here works at the radio station. And I'm like, what? And I turn around, station manager. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So he he broke in and blamed us. That's my. I guess it's not a funny story. It's more of a sad story with a tragic. It's a little. End. It's a little funny though. Yeah. Yeah. I went, like I went and called the cop. Like we all called the cops. I don't know. What they, I don't know whatever happened. I used to work at a McDonald's, and the very first uh, manager we had there disappeared one day. Didn't know what happened to him. And the next day I came to work, and the FBI was there. And we were like, oh, what happened? Did, did somebody kill him or something? Like, we didn't know what had happened. And they were like, oh, no, he, he stole all the money out of the safe and cleaned out the company's bank account. And he's in, he went to Vegas. We're trying to track him down. <laughs> now, like, did, did they call him the Hamburglar? We did. 
Yeah. <laughs> as long as you guys immediately were like Hamburglar, fantastic. Yeah, we definitely called him the Hamburglar. Yeah. I would like it if, in addition to all the money, he also stole hamburgers. Like if he, like, there's a video of him and he's he has a sack of hamburgers over his shoulder. <laughs> like he goes back to the the back yeah. room and fills up a sack with money. He would have gotten away with it if he just didn't love those damn hamburgers so much. <laughs> that was his downfall. What can you do? Mine too. Mine too. <laughs> Well, we've kept you long enough, I think, Josh. We really appreciate you coming on. It was a great time talking to you. Yes, um, for sure. Enjoying all of your books. I'll keep picking them up. Well, thank you so much. And if, if your listeners want to find me, they can find me online. Uh, where am I? I'm on Twitter, at Josh Fialkov. I'm on uh, Tumblr. Uh, it's like joshfialkov.tumblr.com. And I have a Facebook fan page, which is facebook.com slash Joshua Hale Fialkov. And I have a Google Plus page, but I don't know what it is. Like, <laughs> That's no, and I don't mean I, I know where. Like, I think it's Google.JoshuaHaleFialkov or whatever, however you find it. But I literally don't know what it does. So I'm uh, in the exact same boat. If you want to yeah. find us on Twitter, I'm at Comical Podcast. Miguel is at Comical Podcast 2. Heather is at Comical Podcast 3. Facebook.com slash Comical Podcast. Find us on Tumblr at ComicalPodcast.tumblr.com. And we also have a Google Plus account, which we never use. <laughs> <laughs> I have it so it just gets it just gets like a feed of all my stuff and I don't know who looks at it or anything. But it's there. And if someone wants to talk to me on it and show me how it works, I'm all on board. I'm all nice. about it. Cool. Nice. Well thanks for coming on, man. We appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Oh, and if you got oh I forgot, and if you want a free sample of punks, we're doing a thing. We wrote a funny solicit in our uh, we wrote our solicit for the book for issue four, which is in previews right now. Uh, wherein I ask people if they actually read solicits or not. So we've done a we've done a market research survey uh, in in solicitation form. But if you email, um, oh god, I'm going to screw it up. I think it's mail at punksthecomic.com. Uh, cool. You'll get a free punks comic. Awesome! I'm going to do that. There you go. And if that if that address doesn't work, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I, I won't take any offense to that. Go pick Fair up enough. previews and you can figure it out. Yeah, look it up in previews. There you go. It's in okay, I will previews do that right as well. now. All right, guys, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, yes. Josh. It was a lot of fun. Yes, thanks. Do you want to close out the show? Yeah, this is Lord Horse Tickles reminding you to keep on laughing, bitches. <laughs>